This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the five-star novel, What Can't Be Hidden by Brandon Andrus. What Can't Be Hidden is right on time for this moment. It is a stunning and universal portrayal of a people awakening and coming to terms with the systems that have promised to give them peace and freedom while discovering that these virtues can only come from within. What Can't Be Hidden is available everywhere online. Hi, I'm Steve Hackman, pastor, author, adventurer, and pilgrim of the 500-mile Camino de Santiago in Spain and 1,100-mile Via Frangigena across Europe. And you're listening to Second Cup with Keith, my favorite caffeinated theology podcast. Hello and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles. And in this episode, I'm going to take a little bit of a break. I've been doing a bit of an interview series recently, um, talking to some friends of mine who have gone through what we're starting to call at least the second deconstruction, um, or just whatever we're calling that, whatever that is. Um, and I'm loving that converse, those conversations, and we're probably going to continue to have more of those in the future. Um, but for this episode, I wanted to talk about something. This goes back to a conversation I had with a, a friend of mine a while back, um, my friend Jeremy Wood. Shout out to Jeremy. Um, and he had said something that resonated with me. He said, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've had more than your share of red flags, pay attention to them. And so that really got me thinking, um, you know, going back and remembering my past, what were some of the biggest red flags I encountered prior to my first sort of original initial deconstruction and why did I ignore them? And I wonder what would have happened if I didn't ignore them. You know, uh, I mean, eventually I did get around to questioning them, but, you know, I went through probably a long time of having some of these red flags and I just let them pass. I just kind of uh, push them to the side, try not to think about them. And the thing about red flags is that they are an internal warning system, right? And it goes off whenever we experience uh, anything that we feel just isn't right, right? Because we dismiss it. We dismiss it because our theology or doctrine or evangelical culture tells us, no, no, it's okay, or I know it doesn't feel good, it doesn't feel, well, you know, it's what the Bible says. And our inner knower, the knowing within us, it can tell that something is off, right? But our religious programming overrides that internal alarm and sort of resets the circuit breakers. So we just go along with things that deep down we know we probably shouldn't. And so with this in mind, uh, in this episode, I'd like to talk a little bit more about what I see are some of the common red flags I think most people encounter as they go through their evangelical uh, conservative Christian upbringing and um, that they tend to kind of ignore. And, and again, some of, this, some of these are things I ignored, um, sad to say, sorry to say. Um, and some of them are things that I see people ignoring now that I, friends of mine, family members, um, who are, um, in other words, something that doesn't seem right, they might sort of begin to question it, but they almost immediately get afraid. Oh, what am I doing? I shouldn't be questioning this because as if, as if questioning these things, um, is questioning God or doubting God's word or something like that. So that, here we go. Let's just start. I'm going to go down the list. Okay. Um, the first one is, the first red flag is treating women as inferior. Now, again, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. I was licensed and ordained as a Southern Baptist pastor uh, as a young man. 
And, you know, with, with many, as with many evangelical Christian conservative Protestant churches, um, women were not allowed to teach or preach um, anything beyond sort of junior high Sunday school classes, right? So there, women could could be in the nursery, women could do, you know, the toddlers, women could do uh, elementary, women could teach, uh, and like I said, junior high, maybe even high school, maybe high school. But a woman could not stand up behind the pulpit, right, and deliver a sermon. That just wasn't done. And uh, they were not allowed to make decisions for themselves. So even just beyond the sort of hierarchy of church, um, women were not really allowed to think for themselves. They weren't allowed to do something without their husband's approval. And if they weren't married, so if there wasn't a man to sort of tell them what was allowed, what was, you know, uh, what they could do and what they couldn't do to sort of give them that permission, if they were single, um, then they weren't really treated like full-grown adults. They were kind of treated like children. And I'm sorry to say, I mean, I, I experienced that growing up and I probably didn't say anything because I was young myself and I just assumed, well, I'd never seen any other thing modeled. Um, and the people doing it were people that were supposedly smarter than me and knew the Bible better than me. And so, of course, they were all men. Um, but they, they, they acted like this was normal and so I did too. And that's one red flag that I ignored growing up. Um, another red flag would be treating the LGBTQI plus community as subhuman. In in my experience, you know, private conversations that I have with people often painted anyone that wasn't straight as a sexual deviant. And the assumption was that if they weren't straight, they were depraved, they were driven by their lusts. Um it was assumed that, oh, they were probably sexually molested as a child, and this sort of, you know, bent them in this sort of twisted direction of being confused about their sexuality, or some other kind of early childhood trauma. I've heard people say that it's, you know, um, if, a, if a woman was lesbian, it's because she didn't have a good relationship with her father. If a, if a man was gay, he didn't have a good relationship with his mother or something like that. Um, these were sort of the rationalizations for how could anyone be gay, right? How could anyone be queer or trans or anything like that? And so the idea that someone could be normal and in their right mind and a faithful follower of Jesus and still be gay um, was considered an oxymoron, right? And, and it, you know, and in the, in the extreme, it was an, an abomination to God. And I heard people say, you know, the Bible says to kill them um, in Leviticus. And so, you know, the, that verse about God's command to take them out and stone them was quoted more often than you would ever believe in my in growing up and never spoken with any amount of sorrow or remorse or irony. Um, just matter of fact, you know, that's a huge red flag. And I, I, I wish I'd have paid attention to that one a little more early, earlier on in my life growing up. Um, another red flag would be ignoring internal moral fail, failures. And here's what I mean by that one. Church leaders and pastors, and again, in my past, growing up, were way more critical of the quote-unquote immorality outside of the church than they ever were of the immorality that was going on right inside the doors of their own congregations. I saw pastors 
committing adultery with their younger secretaries. I saw youth pastors, quote unquote, dating their teenage students. Uh, I just saw church leaders abusing their own family members, you know, emotionally, um, verbally, things like that, and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And whenever it came to calling out those, uh, calling those people out, those leaders out, or ex- sort of exposing those failures, everybody was pretty quiet about it for the most part. No one really wanted to speak up about it. And so what ends up happening, what I saw, what ended up happening was there was sort of a circle of protection around leaders who were doing horrible things. But those leaders themselves and the people and the people within the congregation um, were hypercritical of the immoralities of those who were, you know, quote unquote, non-Christians outside the church. That was a, that was a big red flag. Uh, another red flag was believing that our church denomination was more special than everybody else. Now I gotta say, um, I this is big. I I challenge anybody who's been a part of a any sort of evangelical Christian church movement um, group, you know, uh, that you haven't experienced something like this. But when I was a Southern Baptist, for example. We love to make fun of charismatics and Pentecostals for their emotional and hyper-spiritual, you know, excesses, speaking in tongues and raising their hand in in worship and all that kind of thing. Now, later on, I ended up becoming a part of the vineyard movement. And uh, when I was a vineyard pastor and church planter, you know, we would then shake our heads and feel sorry for all those other churches out there who just didn't have the same intimacy with God that we did through our worship. Because the worship that the vineyard music put out, you know, certainly in the 80s and 90s, um, was all about intimacy and uh, a lot of the revivals going on, the big Toronto revival, the Brownsville revival that, that was going on in the, in the uh, what late 90s, early 2000s, um, was all kind of fueled by vineyard worship music. And we genuinely believed. And we I remember sitting in meetings with some of the worship leaders, even, who were writing the songs and performing the songs and the, the, we, the albums we were recording. And, you know, well-intentioned, they they were genuinely, <laughs> genuinely disappointed, you know, that all those other denominations, you know, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, you know, the Episcopals, they just, you know, the Lutherans, you know, they just don't have the level of intimacy in worship that we in the vineyard do. Isn't that sad? That's why we, and that's why we have to record this music. That's why we have to put it out there, make it available to them. Uh, because they just don't have it. They're just missing it. But we've got it, right? We need to bottle it and uh, market it and distribute it and put it out there um, because we've got something that they don't. And I'm sure, uh, you know, those are only two. You know, the only, the, the main groups that I was involved in growing up was Southern Baptist and then later the Vineyard. But um, I'm betting if you were Assemblies of God, if you were Foursquare, uh, if you were Presbyterian, Episcopal, Lutheran, you know, any of those, any denomination, really, I'm sure there was some level where you would sort of internally talk to one another about how you had something, you had either figured out something that other denominations hadn't figured out, you had some measure of grace that other denominations didn't enjoy, um, or something like that. 
And I just know that we, we, <laughs> we could never imagine that other denominations might have something to teach us. That's what I think is interesting, right? We can only see it from one direction. Oh, we have something they don't have, those poor people. But we never then said, hey, I wonder if they have something that we don't have. I wonder if we could learn, you know, from them. The assumption was always that we had it, we had it figured out. You know what I mean? We weren't lacking anything. Uh, they were the ones, those poor things that didn't have what we had. And I think that's a huge red flag, right? Anytime one group of people is playing that sort of us and them game, that's ultimately what it is, right? Um, to say that uh, th those that are the quote unquote us, we've got something special and those people over there, them, they don't. And the more you are thinking in that mindset and, and sort of living and, and, um, sort of existing in that environment, you know, of, of this us and them mentality. I mean, to me, that's a huge red flag. That's not a good thing. And I know that now as I've, as I've been talking, you know, breaking out of moving into this sort of second deconstruction, I'm realizing all the ways that I've been engaging in that us and them way of thinking and trying to break it. I want to say it's not easy. It is very difficult to do. Uh, you know, I talked a lot again, this is the last five or six podcast episodes. I've talked a lot about that Socrates quote, which is written on my wall over here. Um, which is that the, the secret of change is not to focus your energy on fighting the old, but on building the new. And for me, that that's a huge part of fighting the old, that us and them mentality, um, falling into that, that way of thinking. And it's very dangerous. So I, I think that's a huge red flag. Certainly now for me, it's, it's a bigger red flag than it, what it used to be. Okay. A couple more. Um, another red flag. And that would be shunning people who disagree with our particular doctrines. I just know growing up as an evangelical Christian, there was no room for disagreement. And this goes back to the previous one, right? We're right, you're wrong. You don't agree with me, and then it's your problem, right? So, you know, but anyone within our church who asked a question, challenged the pastor, disagreed with a statement of faith, they were pretty quickly invited to leave or just treated as an outcast until they got the hint and left on their own. Um, and again, the inability to tolerate people who think for themselves, people who have their own ideas. Uh, that's a huge red flag. And again, like at the beginning, you know, we're talking about when you have these red flags, pay attention to them. If you are in a situation where you start to go, that doesn't seem right. Should we be doing that? Is this something that Jesus would do? Then then don't dismiss that red flag. Stay on that. Wrestle with that. Find out a good answer, a satisfactory answer to that question. Um, and again, that's kind of what this episode's all about, recognizing those red flags and not being too quick to uh, to dismiss them. Okay, how many more do I have? One, two, three, four. Oh, I like four more. Okay, so uh, the other red flag would be that the idea that the Bible is sort of, you know, univocal, that it's 100% accurate, it has no mistakes, it has no contradictions, and it's a univocal text. 
Now, I would say that red flag, you know, I guess you would never even have that red flag until you started to read the Bible for yourself. Because for me, it wasn't until I started really reading the Bible. And when I got into the, like, as a Bible teacher, you know, my early sort of college days, um, you know, I went from reading. So before that, I'd say like around in high school and stuff, I, I was reading the Bible. But I wasn't really paying close attention. It wasn't until I started teaching the Bible, and that was probably late high school, early college, where they, I started getting invited to like do Bible studies, teach Bible studies for like the youth group initially, and then for our college group, and then you know for other other people, and then I was allowed to preach and you know things like that from the pulpit. So that involved a lot of studying. You know, I'd have a question about something, or I'd I'd start with one verse that I thought, oh, this is a great verse, but then I would suddenly like, okay, well that connects to this other verse and I would flip over and read that one. And then once I started really digging into the Bible and really paying attention to what it said, then I, pretty quickly, I think I started noticing, well, this, this verse over here seems to directly challenge something over there, you know? And, uh, that's what, that's what happens, right? They say that the, the number one cause of deconstruction is reading the Bible. And uh, studying the Bible, I would say absolutely, was for me. Uh, those who read and study the Bible are the ones who start to notice that everything doesn't always line up, right? Things don't always make sense. Like the, the first one I can, I think I remember noticing, this was this was the, the first thing I noticed was um, when I was just reading the Bible, this, so this was like in high school, I was trying to read through the Bible, you know, um, so I'd, every night I'd read a couple chapters before I went to bed. And um, I loved King David at the time. I thought King David, he's my favorite character in the Bible. And so when you're reading through like first and second Kings, uh, it gives you a lot of the details of the life of King David. And then first and second Samuel kind of retell the story uh, of King David. But I started noticing slightly different details. And sometimes contradictory details, like, oh, he didn't do this, he did that. Or this didn't happen here, it happened over there. And uh, hmm. I think the very first one is the one where you notice, I, I, I can't remember the details. I, I do remember like in, in either, in 1 Kings, there's a there's a, the same event that's recorded in 1 Kings, 1 or 2 Kings, and it's also recorded in 1 and 2 Samuel. Again, I don't remember if it was 1 or 2 Kings or 1 or 2 Samuel, but nonetheless, it, the same event is recorded in first and or second Kings and first and or second Samuel. And it's the, it's the story of how David numbered the mighty men. So David had these mighty men, the sort of elite task force of people um, that were on his team and uh, like seal team six kind of, you know, but I guess there was a lot of them. Anyway, he, he numbered them and, um, and I think maybe also numbered, yeah, he counted his chariots and his and his his soldiers and his mighty men and all that. Anyway, um, and in, in again, I can't remember the details of which is which, but in one of them, when it says that he did this, it says that the Holy Spirit prompted him to to do the census to count them. But in the other one, it says that Satan tempted him to do that. 
So which is it? And I've heard, and that's probably one of the first things I started asking questions about that. And then I remember later on in college, you know, reading um, apologetics books that would to try to harmonize that. Well, it was the Holy Spirit, but you know, it was also a temptation. But God doesn't tempt you, so it had to be Satan. But uh, it was Satan pretending to be the Holy Spirit or something like that. You know, they would they would all these various ways of getting around it. It doesn't change the fact that. One passage says, one book says it was the Holy Spirit, and the other one says that it was Satan. And then anyway, I started, then I started noticing more of those kinds of things. Um, there's also, by the way, I, between discrepancies between Kings and Samuel, where uh, it'll, give, well, it'll give you some numbers, right? It'll say that something like, you know, David had 100,000 men, and then later in another one it would say that he had like... Uh, half a million. And it's like, well, which was it? And it's really lame, the apologetics around that. They'll be like, well, if I said, if you really had 500,000 and I said you had 100,000, that's still true because if you, because you have 500,000, it means you do have 100,000. Of course, <laughs> it's like, that's kind of cheating, right? If one of them isn't telling you the whole story, why is it only mentioning the 100,000 when it should be mentioning the 500,000? because that was the real number, right? Which, of course, is what's going on. One of them is wrong. One of them is either exaggerating or the other one is uh, just incorrect. Uh, but anyway, that was a red flag. And just noticing the Bible does have contradictions and the inability for some Bible teachers to confess that and admit that. And I want to say, by the way, it's really only evangelical Christians who insist that the Old Testament scriptures all agree on everything because we're the ones who have gotten into this idea of inerrancy and infallibility. Um, Jewish, you know, Jewish teachers, Jewish rabbis um, for hundreds, thousands of years have celebrated the fact that their texts, which we call the old Testament, they call it right. The Torah, the, the, the prophets um, and you know, the wisdom books and things like that, which com 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 comprise the old Testament texts. Um, they celebrate the fact that it's a uh, multivocal book. They celebrate the fact that there are different perspectives, right? I see this all the time. Um, there's that old joke when you have, like if you have you know, three rabbis in a room, you have four opinions. Because they love playing that game of, but what about this perspective? What about this other perspective? They don't always insist that there's only one way of reading something or understanding something. So I mean, that's that's a huge red flag. Um, another one would be double standards for men and women. And this is a little similar to what I was saying before, but I still would, I want to pull this out as a separate one because here's what I saw all the time. Men who cheated on their wives were immediately, I mean, for the most, you know, in, in the larger sense, I would say every time, but in my experience, um, the assumption was that if the man cheated, that he was weak he had a, you know, he, he, uh, had a moment of weakness and the poor guy, everyone makes mistakes, dude. It's okay. You know, you're only human. And the woman either tempted you and, you know, what were you supposed to do? You have no control of your own body. You have no willpower or your wife wasn't meeting your needs sexually or something like that. So, you know, it's kind of the wise fault. If she'd have, if she had been more attentive to you, you wouldn't have been, you know, uh, susceptible to these kinds of temptations. And I'm sorry to say, even even honestly, just repeating that, it makes me feel icky. 
but I heard that a lot. And um, so the woman was sort of the seen as the predator in that situation, um, the temptress. And, and especially if that man was a Bible teacher or a pastor or a leader in some fashion or form in the church, um, very quickly that, that, that man was quote unquote restored and put back in a place of authority, put back in a place of, you know, teaching and things like that. But women, you know, if a woman cheated on her husband, well then, you know, she was the Jezebel, right? And, and, and then it would be almost like you could never, again, I'm just saying from my experience, you know, that, that would, you would never wipe that slate clean. You would always, always keep in the back of your mind. Yeah, but she did that. Whereas with the man, it was like, well, you know, we all make mistakes. Um, and that's my gosh, what a massive red flag that is, right? That is, that's actually pretty disgusting. Okay. Last two here. Um, Another red flag would be equating political affiliation with eternal salvation. I ran into this all the time. Uh, in fact, it's one of the things I talk about in my book, Jesus Untangled, that um, that got me thinking, um, you know, about my own entanglement with faith and politics. And it was when I was talking to, I was talking to my mom and dad on the phone at the time. We had a friend who, a, a family friend we'd known for a long, long time. And she had, you know, visited church with my mom and dad, gone forward at the altar call and become a Christian at, you know, in her sixties or something. And I remember them telling me on the phone, of course, at the time I'm evangelical. So I think that's awesome. I'm like, Oh, that's beautiful. That's so wonderful. Our friend Phyllis is now a Christian. Great. So about a month later, I'm on the phone with my parents again. And I asked them, hey, what's going on with our friend Phyllis? You know, is she going to church and how's it going? And they got really quiet. And my dad says, you know, um, I don't, I'm not sure she really is a Christian after all. And I was like, oh my gosh, what happened? I'm thinking, you know, she must have done something horrible. What happened? Right. And my dad says, well, we just found out that she voted for Al Gore in the last election. She voted for a Democrat. And I was like, What? I said, Dad, you know there's going to be Democrats in heaven, right? It's not like, heaven's not just a bunch of Baptist Republicans. And But when I hung up the phone after that conversation with my dad, you know, on the one hand, I was a little disappointed, a little shocked that my parents had that perspective. But then I had to be honest and say, well, haven't I sort of had that perspective growing up my whole life? Because I did, you know. Uh, I mean, I was raised, I say this all the time, you know, I've talked very a lot about this. I was raised a conservative Republican, uh, voted straight ticket Republican my whole life. As soon as I was early enough to vote, right? Starting with Ronald Reagan straight through. Um, I listened to Rush Limbaugh. I had his books. Uh, I thought Rush was right. I was a member of the NRA, had a bunch of guns, you know? And, and for me at the time, the idea that someone could be a Christian and vote Democrat was impossible. That was like, that can't happen. That's, that's an oxymoron. That's like a square circle or, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and that's one of these things that should have been a red flag for me. I got to say, uh, I tolerated that for, I was involved in that. I was immersed in that for the longest time. Uh, really, like I said, it wasn't a red flag for me until that conversation with my parents. And it's like, I only was able to notice it in my parents first. But once I noticed it in them, then I suddenly said, well, wait a minute. I think I've kind of done the same thing my whole life too. And that led me to really do some introspection 
and and realize that I was more American, I was more Republican uh, than Christian. That most of my views weren't really based on things that Jesus taught. They were based on, you know, things, again, I'd heard from Rush Limbaugh or, you know, conservative pundits, uh, things I'd heard them talk about. So that's a huge red flag. Um, I would say also, and I guess this is probably the final, is this the final one? I hold in my hand the final red flag. Here we go. Drum roll, please. The final red flag would be, and this one really does bother me, blaming the sick for not being healed. Now, this isn't something, thank God, this isn't something that I ever personally participated in. The other ones I did, and I'm just confessing to you, I did um, on some levels. But, but here, this one about blaming the sick for not being healed. Um, I did see that sort of thing being repeated quite often. And I would say, especially when I was a part of the Vineyard Movement, and I think that's only because the Vineyard Movement was open to you know, miracles and healing. And then they would actually lay hands on people and pray for them to be healed, right? And so a little bit of that idea that if you had enough faith, you would automatically be healed um, kind of crept in to some of the vineyard teachings, uh, at least in the communities of faith that I was a part of. And so if someone got sick and everybody laid hands on them and prayed for them to be healed in Jesus' name. If they weren't healed, it was always, I would say at least almost, almost always attributed to a lack of faith so, or some secret sin in this person's life, right? Because the assumption was that God, of course, God always wants to heal. And Jesus was always able to heal everyone he laid hands on. And so if we have the faith, if we believe, you know, the way Jesus told us to, um, and we pray for you and it doesn't happen. Well, the problem isn't with God. The problem isn't with the Holy Spirit or Jesus. The problem isn't with me. Because, I mean, I had faith and I, that's the only reason I laid hands on you and prayed for you in Jesus' name. I fully believe you would be healed. So what's the missing piece? Well, it must be you. And I really hate this. I really, really do. And like I said, thankfully, this isn't something I participated in. But I, you know what? It was so damaging because I saw people many of them lose their faith over these sorts of teachings and attitudes like you're not being healed because there's some sin in your life or you're being not being healed because you don't have enough faith. And, you know, people that have brain cancer, people that have leukemia, people that, um, you know, have terminal illnesses or sometimes not even terminal, maybe it's just something annoying, you know, like I have a pain in my lower back or I have a, I'm deaf in my right ear or, um, you know, I, I I don't have any grip strength in my arm or something, you know, just an, uh, an infirmity, an ailment, you know, something that really annoys them and hurts them and, and, and hinders them in some way. And to be told that Jesus wants to heal you, God's intention is always, of course, to heal you, but you're not being healed because, you know, so it's bad enough you're suffering, but now let's lay on you the guilt, right? Yeah, it's, it sucks that this thing's happening to you. But, you know, hey, let's just remind you that that you're not healed from it because of you're a sinner or or because you just don't have enough faith. In other words, you're lacking something. And and you would be healed, actually, if you just weren't, you know, you're broken in this physical way. Now you're also broken in a spiritual way. And until you, you know, fix that, you're never going to get healed. And I mean, I just saw people 
going forward, you know, going to healing ceremonies, driving hundreds of miles to go see some evangelist uh, to try to get their healing and never get it. And always feel that condemnation that the reason they weren't getting it was it was their problem. It was their fault. It was something missing in them uh, that was preventing that miracle from happening. At the same time, I've had conversations with people, um, you know, who said, look, my mom loved Jesus more than anyone I ever knew. Her whole life believed in miracles. Um, she got leukemia. We all prayed for her. The whole church prayed for her. She had faith right to the very end. And she died. And the bottom line on these kind of things is that, hey guys, newsflash, we're mortal. People die. Uh, I'm not even saying that sometimes healings don't take place because I've experienced healing. My dad experienced healing. I'm not sure I get it. You know, it's kind of a mystery. But, um, but there's no sort of formula. You know, I'm sorry, there is no formula. Uh, if it happens, it happens randomly. If it doesn't happen, it also happens randomly. Um, it's not, there's no point in putting condemnation on anybody. In the same way, there'd be no reason to put any sort of, uh, you know, adulation on someone who prayed and they were healed. Like, oh, look at you. You're such a powerful person of faith. Because um, that also happens too, right? So, yeah, I, I, um, I got to say that that red flag is a huge one. And I think if you're part of a church where they're teaching that kind of thing, it's just destructive to people. It's destructive to their faith. Um, not a good thing. Anyway, so I just wanted to cover some of these things and, and, and say, you know, those are just a few of the red flags that I've experienced uh, as a former evangelical Christian pastor. I'm sure you guys have some red flags. In fact, I'd, I'd love to ask you guys if you, if I missed anything, if there are some red flags that you've heard about or you've experienced in your, you know, in, in your sort of evangelical Christian experience, you know, send me a message, leave me a, leave a comment on this podcast. Um, let me know about it. I'd be curious. Uh, what were the, are there any red flags that you saw and, and you let it slide? And I would say not just what was the red flag, but why did you let it slide? Why did you ignore it? And I, let's just say too now, let's just kind of bring it even to today. So, okay, yes, I used to be evangelical Christian. I'm not anymore. Uh, I've deconstructed some things. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm in the place I am now moving into what we are calling the second deconstruction of faith. Okay. That doesn't mean I'm now suddenly in this place where there are no more red flags. I think if you're alive <laughs> and you're growing and you're having experiences, you're having conversations with people, you're encountering people, you're also seeing, you're still seeing red flags, right? And so to stop and ask ourselves now, what are the red flags in my life right now? And those could be red flags in your faith, because that's what I've mainly talked about here. But let's just take a second and back up for a minute, right? Or let's take a wider view. What are the red flags in your relationships? Are there red flags in your marriage? Are there red flags between you and your children? Are there red flags in the workplace with coworkers or your boss? Or even just your, your career path, you know, where you're at right now and, and are you, is this really where you should be? Like, let's stop and assess that. What are those red flags? I think it's so important for us, and just getting back to what I was saying at the beginning, what are red flags, right? 
there's, there's an intuition. Ultimately, that's all this is. Every one of us, every human being, has built-in intuition, you know? We are involved in a conversation with someone and something is said that hits us wrong and we may not even fully understand why it feels wrong, but we just know, ugh, that was not good. That was wrong. And we should pay attention to that. Like my friend Jeremy said, pay attention to those red flags. Um, I mean, just going back for, for me and Wendy, there was a time when, you know, we, we uh, weren't affirming yet, but it didn't feel right that we weren't affirming. You know what I mean? So it would be like, well, you know, the Bible says that being gay is a sin. We, that's what we thought. Right? We believed at the time. Uh, that the Bible taught that it being homosexual, being gay was a sin. Now I know better now, uh, by the way, I did a podcast on that. So you can go back and find that podcast. I know now the Bible does not condemn homosexuality the way we think of it. But at the time I thought it did. And because I thought it did, um, I, I allowed this red flag that I had this sort of check in my spirit, this sort of uneasy feeling that any time I expressed that view, which I thought was a biblical view, I thought was a the God's you know approved perspective. Every time I voiced it out loud, something in me just said, "Is that right? That doesn't seem right. Doesn't feel doesn't feel right." And that's what I'm saying is that um, we get these red flags, we get them. When it comes to spiritual discussions, we get them in political discussions. We get them in just conversations with family members, with friends, coworkers, things like that. And we go through situations in our life where, you know, maybe on the outside, everything looks okay. Everything looks like it's, this is the way it's supposed to be. But we need to take care to pay attention to our, our inner knower that intuition that says, I don't know that it's okay to condemn people for being different from me. I'm not sure it's okay to say that I get to enjoy privilege that they don't because of this, because of their, their difference or something like that. Um, there's lots of things like that where I think it's so important for us to, to pay attention to our red flag, to develop our ability to trust our intuition, Right to take that seriously. I, I'll just say this because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of old, <laughs> um, getting up there, I'm getting close to 60, not quite. I think, what am I? 57, something like that. Um, let's just say I'm 57. And, uh, you know, so I've lived a good long life so far. Hopefully I keep living a long, long life, but you know, in my 57 some odd years of life, um, I've had lots of occasions where these kinds of red flags will pop up and I have ignored them. And almost invariably, at some point down the road, I end up circling back to those red flags and reassessing and reevaluating. And I end up saying, you know what? I should have listened to that. I was right. My intuition was right. My intuition told me this wasn't good. My intuition told me there was something wrong. My intuition told me that um, 
that I should stop and think about it. And I just didn't. And so I'll just say for myself, I'm trying to learn now to pay a lot of attention to that. So if I'm in a situation and I, and I have that sort of red flag kind of pop up to stop and go, well, wait, wait a minute, what is this? Where is that coming from? Because I think that inner knower, um, I think that inner knower is this uh, sort of indwelling Christ, right? It's this, the one in whom we all live and move and have our being. Uh, I think that's what it is. It's it's the spirit of Christ within us saying, now hang on a minute, think about this, reconsider this, look at this a little harder, look at this a little more critically, question this, you know, um, and yes, sometimes doubt this. And I think it's so important for us to do that. So um, I think we, the more we can learn to do that, the more we can learn to trust our intuition, to develop our ability, to develop our our intuition and our, our sensitivity to red flags, the more likely it is that we're going to protect ourselves from continuing to fall for the same kind of thing over and over again. Because in the past, you know, so much of the stuff I had to deconstruct from my evangelical Christian days um, came from what I recognize now. I didn't at the time, but now looking back, I recognize that so much of that was about fear and shame and guilt. And that's probably what my intuition was telling me, right? No matter what it was, it was saying, hey, that that what that person just said, is that really truth or is that fear? Or is that is this really the way it is or is this just shame? Or is this really the truth or is this just someone trying to make you feel guilty about something so they can manipulate you and control you? And so I don't know about you, I'm I'm learning to and wanting to learn to be better about listening to that inner voice, developing my intuition, and listening to those red flags. I think it's critical. I think it's important if we're going to grow and mature. And, you know, again, I am getting to be an old man. Um, I have more years behind me than I have ahead of me. And I don't want to waste any of the time that I have left, um, you know, falling for the same old stuff over and over again and um, and allowing fear and shame and guilt to drive me or accepting ideas that really I should be questioning um, and I should be listening to that inner voice saying, hang on a minute, hold on, let's think about it. So anyway, there you go. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me here to have this conversation. I appreciate all of you so much for listening. I've heard so many wonderful things. Many of you have said how much you love the podcast. Um, so I thank you for, you know, spreading the word, telling your friends about the podcast, sharing links to the podcast. I thank you for rating and reviewing it on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts, Spotify, all that helps. Thank you so much. And I got to say as well, just as a reminder, if you like this podcast, you are going to love the book. There is a book. Yes. The book is second cup with Keith, just like the podcast. And I took the first 32 episodes of this podcast. I turned each of those episodes into a chapter. And so all of the things I talk about on this podcast, all the subjects, all the topics, all the, all the research, um, all the things that I've done for every podcast episode uh, is in the book and you have it available. If you want to share it with a friend, it's, I think it's perfect for people that have questions, right? 
Uh, if you have family members and friends who have questions about hell or the cross or the end times or the second coming or the rapture or, you know, anything about the Bible, uh, this is sort of like, this is the one book you can hand to somebody and say, read this. This is going to help you. This will answer those questions. So check that out. It's on Amazon. It's on Kindle and it's on paperback. And hopefully very soon it's going to be on Audible. Um, and let me see what else. Uh, I will also remind you that I have a brand new book coming out. It should be out in April. It's called The Quantum Sayings of Jesus. The subtitle is Decoding the Lost Gospel of Thomas. It's 368 pages. I'm really proud of it. And um, it'll be out in April. So look for that if you're curious about the Gospel of Thomas. And thank you all again for listening to this episode of Second Cup with Keith. We'll see you again next time. Thanks so much.